Okay, so we're going we're gonna to dive in. As Chris was saying, this is the last message from the Gospel Foundation series. And today we're going to look at the, uh, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, and uh, what it's, it's actually, in my, in my mind, a great message with which to end the series for a number of reasons. So from the last book of the Bible, we're going from Genesis to Revelation. It's rich in references and allusions to the biblical storyline. Uh, it's just amazing when you start digging in and seeing, you know, what various passages are either explicitly quoting or alluding to. Uh, it's, it's very rich, and so it does touch on the entire gospel in a number of different ways, at least through some of its symbolism and allusions. Uh, it gives us a clear vision of what Jesus is looking for in a congregation that claims him as Lord and which identifies itself with his name. And as we'll see in today's message, Jesus is interested in far more than a Gospel Foundation series unto better understanding, as important as right understanding is. It's important for us to know who God is according to how he's revealed himself in and through his word. But he's looking for more than just right understanding. He's looking for a people whose way of life is actually built on the rock unto a faithful representation of himself to those around us. He's looking for lampstand communities through which he can radiate the light, life, power, and the ways of the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, to a world that needs what he has to say to them. The only hope for mankind is this gospel that he desires to shine forth in both word and deed to the nations of the earth. I'll just say right off the bat, this is one of those messages that I certainly don't feel worthy to preach, given how quick my own light seems to flicker at times. But I always take courage in, in, in Jesus' statement in Matthew, quoting from Isaiah, that a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And when I feel like my, my lamp is starting to grow dim, I cry out to the Lord with that verse, and I say, Lord, I feel like my... my my, my light is starting to grow a little too dim. Would you fan it back into flame? Would you give me fresh oil? And that's what we're going to pray, that the Lord of the lampstands would give us that oil today. So today we're going to examine four main questions. Number one, what is the significance of the image of a lampstand being used in reference to assemblies or congregations? Number two, what is the Lord of the lampstands like He's obviously trying to bring those who represent him or claim to represent him into conformity with himself. So we want to have understanding of what he's like. Number three, what hope and prize does the Lord of the lampstands set before the lampstands? Because it's a difficult race. And we see that in his message to these seven churches. And number four, in light of all he has done for the lampstands... In light of the glorious work he's accomplished on the cross, in light of the gift of the Spirit and the hope of eternal life, what does the Lord of the lampstands expect and require of those who claim to bear that light? Let's look at Revelation 1, 10 through 13. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then John says, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. So we're going to look at what these lampstands mean. We're going to look at some of the symbolism. Just to say it up front, we don't have time today to go into a detailed exposition of everything Jesus says to these various churches. That's a fascinating study. And when you look at the way he, 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 he forms his messages and the attributes about himself that he highlights to specific churches, churches, it's very fascinating. But that's not our goal today. Today, we're going to look at some lists, some summary lists that kind of follow our outline. They basically set the outline for what we're going to cover today. We're going to look at these lists and we're going to use them to highlight some important themes and ideas and try to relate these to the broader biblical storyline since we're relating this to the Gospel Foundation series. And as we move through these lists, I want you to think of each point as kind of a breaststroke and that we're just going to let the Lord paint a picture and we really want Jesus to be the one preaching his message to us. And of course, there's a sense in which we want that to be, every, be the case every time we present a message, that our message adequately reflects what the Lord wants to say and who he is. But in this particular message, I've tried to outline this material and summarize it in a way that we're just kind of letting the Lord address us as a, as a, as a body and church family. And, and as we'll see, this is, a, a, this is a message that applies to the body of Christ as well as specific uh, congregations. So my hope is that this message will stir hunger for deeper study. There's going to be notes available online if you want to dive in afterward. We won't have time to break out down every Bible verse. Notes will be online. I encourage you to grab these uh, later when you can and look up the various scriptures. Now I want to apologize ahead of time. I, I don't know if all of you will be able to see all of the lists. Arden, why don't you go ahead and put up the first one, the lampstands in context. Oh, I... I I got this new upgrade feature on my Bible software, and I started playing around. I was like, oh, I'm going to make this really pretty. And then I realized, wait a minute, can I enlarge it? Can I zoom in on it? So my apologies if you can't see it. But I will go through, uh, through these lists verbally, so just in case you can't see them. Number one, the lampstand. Jesus is walking among these lampstands. The lampstands that he's referring to is a, is a menorah. You guys know what the menorah is, right? It's the, it's the lampstand that was in the tabernacle, had seven branches, and it's one of, these, one of the sacred objects as part of the, the kind of the tabernacle, tabernacle complex. The tabernacle and its sacred objects are full of symbolism. And at the end of the notes, I included a lot of resources that you can dive into if you want to explore more about some of the symbolism of the tabernacle. But its design is meant to point worshippers' attention backward in history, to the Garden of Eden, to the, the original glory of Eden, as well as to remind us how tragic it was that human beings fell and to draw people to repentance. But it also is meant to point us forward in history to the kingdom of God and the restored Eden to come when Jesus returns, calling forth both remembrance of things that have taken place and stirring up hope and longing for things yet to come. And in this, in this regard, it represents so much of what has been covered in the Gospel Foundation series. So we're going to work quickly through these lists. And just on some, some minor points, I'll, I'll, I'll give a little exposition. But we're not going to just break everything down. We're just going to go through these lists. So let's do some, some quick highlights. Uh, the Eden and the lampstand, or sorry, Eden, the tabernacle, and the kingdom to come. It's interesting, they all have this threefold arrangement. 
In Eden, you had the mountain of God. You had the garden of God in the region of Eden. And, 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 and increasing grades of holiness, if you will, from the center where God was in the sense of his manifest presence moving outward. And you have the same reality uh, depicted in the tabernacle where you have the holy of holies, uh, the holy place, and then the courtyard. And then you have the same thing restored in the age to come. Genesis 1, 3, Exodus 25 through 30, Ezekiel 40 through 48, and Revelation 21 through 22 are the best places if you want to do a compare, comparative analysis of some of these elements. Eden, the tabernacle, and the new Jerusalem to come. We see life-giving waters. We see, a river, we see rivers flowing eastward. We see a bronze, of base, uh, a bronze basin in the courtyard with cleansing waters. And then in the age to come, we see the river of the waters of life restored. In Eden, and in the tabernacle, and in the New Jerusalem, we see precious metals and precious stones. And if you want to stand in awe of the, the, the beauty of the city that awaits us, read Revelation 21. And 22. It's absolutely amazing. Gold and, and onyx and all of these beautiful precious metals and, and, and stones. Uh, God's manifest glory, the special place of his dwelling with humanity, that even though God is omnipresent, he also chooses a place to reveal his glory in a particular way where his glory and power rests. We see that in Eden on the mountain of God. We see that when the Shekinah glory came upon the tabernacle. And we see, such as in passages like Isaiah 4, that this will be restored. The, Lord, the glory of the Lord will rest on Zion. Priestly service. It's interesting. The terminology used in the garden is very similar to the terminology used in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle service. And Adam and Eve are told to serve and guard and keep the garden and the priests are told to serve and guard and keep the tabernacle. We're made to be priests. We're made to worship God and to come into his presence and to have fellowship with him. A priestly calling has been the, the original calling for humanity from the beginning. It was the call for the people of Israel as a nation. And we'll see these things restored in the age to come. We see the presence of angels and cherubim in the garden, guarding the entrance to the garden after Adam and Eve fell. We see cherubim uh, woven into the, the curtains of the tabernacle. We see, of course, the, the cherubim are guarding the, the, the mercy seat. And then we know, uh, and we see in Revelation, we see pictures of the images of the four living creatures. Food. Who likes to eat? I mean, come on. God gave them every plant for food and, and every tree, pleasing to look at, good for food in the beginning. God feeding his priests, if you will. And in the same way, in the, in the tabernacle, in the second section, in the holy place, we have the bread of the presence, which was food eaten by the priests, by the Levitical priests. Once a week, they would change out the bread, but then they would get to eat it. And then, of course, we have the wedding supper of the lamb in the age to come, and, and we get renewed access to the tree of life. And uh, the, the Isaiah uh, 25, the, the fatty meats and the fine wines. It's going to be really amazing. Wisdom and God's instruction represented. God said it in, in, in the Garden of Eden, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the tabernacle, we see God's law deposited there. The two tablets, the book of the law, the manna representing you know, God's provision, God's Aaron's staff, God's selection of, and appointment of authority, 
all of these things representing his wisdom. And the thing to note in both cases is you don't mess with these. If you do, you die. Right? You don't, you don't just go into the Holy of Holies and mess with that stuff. You don't just eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have God's wisdom, God's law, God's instruction represented. And of course, in the age to come, it says very clearly in Revelation 21 that unclean things and witchcraft and idolatry and immorality, these things will not be allowed into the city. So we see the same type of reality. And then the tree of life, I have it highlighted here. This is the one we're really going to lock into in the next list. It's a tree-like lampstand. And uh, the, the lampstand actually represents the tree of life. It was in the beginning, and we're promised that it's going to be, we're going to be given renewed access to it in the age to come. It's described as having branches with lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with, with buds and petals. And this lampstand, the menorah, it's our focus today. But I just wanted to work quickly through this list because it's important to bear in mind its significance in relationship to the other parts of the tabernacle, which is a visual display of our hope as believers. And the hope of Israel, that's, you know, they're, they're engaging with the tabernacle worship for centuries. They're setting their hope on the day when Eden will be restored. And Gentiles have been mercifully brought into that hope through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, list number two. Let's go ahead and throw that one up, Arden. The significance of the lampstand. So we're going to hone in now to the, the lampstand, which represents the tree of life. The menorah, it derives its, uh, it derives its meaning from the verb to shine or to be radiant. Pretty appropriate for a lampstand. Um, and what's significant about this is it represents the God of Israel, the one true God, the creator who made himself known to the Jewish people and through whom he's promised to bless all the nations of the earth. It's the God of Israel, the creator and the one true God, the God of light in whom there is no darkness at all, to use the language of John in, in, in 1 John, who gives light and is the source of eternal life. So the life and light of God burning forth from the lampstand, representing that there's one true God who gives light and there's one true God before whom all nations will bow and give an account. The oil and the fire and the light in those lamps, remember you picture the lampstand, it had seven lamps, all with, with lampstands and with oil in them, with the light burning out, and, or, excuse me, fire burning out and casting forth light across the other side of the tabernacle where the twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes of Israel were, the, God's light shining down on the twelve tribes. And the, the oil, the fire, and the light represent the glory, power, presence, and the blessing of the, the God of light who wraps himself in light, who creates light in the beginning. The God who's an all-consuming fire. The fiery emotions of God, his fiery jealousy for his people. And we see a number of times in the scriptures that the oil is often connected in some way or associated with the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God, the oil of God, ablaze and burning like a fire, filling the tabernacle. And as all the people of Israel are putting out their lamps at night, they can look to the middle of the camp, and there's still one light that's not going out. And whose is that? That's the glory of Yahweh. His light never flickers. His, night, his light, his, his oil never runs out. His fire never dies. What an encouragement to the people of Israel as they're walking through the wilderness. 
The lampstands required a constant flow of oil. The lamps had to be kept burning continually because God, his fire keeps burning continually. He's eternal. He's ongoing. His character never changes, and he's eternally existent. The number seven, there's seven lamps on the lampstand. Seven, as you guys probably know from your own study, represents, it's, a, it's often literal, but sometimes symbolic too, in, in that it represents completion or fullness, and it's also associated in the scriptures with covenant. In fact, the word to make a covenant comes from, is, is related to the word for seven, to, to seven yourself to somebody. And you often see rituals that accompany the establishment of, of covenants accompanied by seven of something. So covenant, fullness, perfection, God saying, I'm the God of covenant through this lampstand. This is pretty amazing. This is amazing stuff. A tree of life, covenant, God's burning fire shining on the 12 tribes of Israel. Shines on the 12 loaves of the bread of the presence. Um, this is, uh, if you, I heard one commentator describe it as, this is a visual, a visual uh, presentation of the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and do what? Cause his face to shine upon you. That this is, the, uh, this is the ironic blessing in visual form. The Lord causing the light of his face to shine upon them as a reminder of his graciousness toward them. His desire to protect them and watch over them. And the lampstand is arboreal in its construction. It's tree-like, branches. And as we talked about earlier, it represents the tree of life. And so it should be a little surprise to us that by New Testament times, the menorah came to represent Judaism and eternal life. Judaism, you know, the Jewish people, the stewards of the oracles of God, who've been entrusted with the knowledge of God, proclaiming that knowledge to the world, and also holding out the hope of eternal life, which is, of course, the longing of all of us, the longing of Israel, the hope of Israel, and the longing of all the nations, longing for the day, as Isaiah 25 says, when the shroud of death will be removed, and we're gathered around the mountain, and we're eating with the Messiah at the wedding supper of the Lamb. What a glorious picture. So, with all of that in mind, now let's read Revelation 1.20 together. In Revelation 1, we learn that the lampstands among which Jesus is walking represent specific churches or congregations. And he says here, Revelation 1.20, The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the seven churches, are the, excuse me, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Churches here just means congregations or assemblies. So he's saying here that in this vision, the lampstands represent these seven fellowships. Think about how incredible this is in light of what we just talked about, the imagery and what a profound statement it is that through his son, the God of Israel, the one true God, has redeemed human beings from, both, from among both the Jews and the Gentiles. He's entered into a solemn covenant with them. He's poured his perfect sevenfold spirit into us, his own light, his own oil, his glory, his power, and his life. As the Messiah walks among his people and lives his life in and through us, he wants to shine forth his light and blessing upon the world so that others too may know him, know his ways, knows what, knows what he's like, and may experience his salvation. He wants the nations of the earth to be free from bondage to decay 
to be included in his coming kingdom, to be spared the wrath to come. As those who have received the first fruits and the deposit of the Spirit, we are trees being grown and nourished by the very Spirit of life, being prepared for an inheritance of eternal life, being prepared for the day of Christ Jesus. We are living corporate signposts who bear the message and the hope of eternal life on behalf of the Creator Himself, the one true God, the God of Israel. That is a high calling. Would you guys agree with me? I mean, talk about some powerful symbolism. Obviously, there were more than seven congregations at the time Revelation was written in the 90s AD. So, seven is, as I mentioned earlier, it's the, it's, it's the number of fullness. These churches are representative of what Jesus is looking for from every congregation who claims, his, claims him as Lord. They're representative. There's something, even if every specific aspect of every message doesn't apply to, to this specific congregation, it still serves as an exhortation not to go there, doesn't it? See what I'm saying? That these are messages that are specifically meant to be exam examples, exemplary types, pictures for the church of all ages to, to take note of and to learn from because we are in the same boat as they are. Revelation 2.7 he says it pretty clearly. I love how he, he, you know, he closes his, the seven letters with these various exhortations to make, make sure we're clear. This is not just for these seven churches. Whoever has ears, check, make sure. Yeah, that's, that's me. And it looks like most of you too. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we go. We're, he's clearly moving us from an individual message to a, a universal application. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, the, these seven churches, they were, they were all prominent cities in Asia Minor at the time. And according to one commentator, he says that word often spread from major cities. So the messages to the churches in these seven cities would affect the churches of the entire province. A messenger delivering John's book would arrive first in Ephesus. The other cities are arranged in the sequence a messenger would follow on foot to reach them. And that's the point. These messages were meant to get out all around the region. And they were meant to be heeded and listened to carefully by all of the churches, of which these were merely representative churches in these influential cities. One quick note before we move on. Jesus says some pretty intense things to these churches. I think we know that if we've read them. When we hear these messages, we must remember that the weight and the seriousness of the things Jesus says to the seven churches only make sense when we understand them in proportion to the greatness of the gift we've received and in light of the incomparable preciousness of the message that we carry and represent as his followers. The stakes are incredibly high. And therefore, Jesus sometimes gets pretty intense. He has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Yet we also see his great mercy and his long-suffering come through in these letters as well. Praise God. We need both the affirmation and the warning to be able to stay on the narrow path faithfully until the day he returns. So let's go to the next list. The Lord of the lampstands. I'm going to let you 
uh, the, the scripture verses are in bold and with the highlighter over them. I'm just going to highlight these elements of the Lord that he wanted these churches, these aspects of the Lord, he wanted these churches to be aware of as they're processing these letters written to them. So number one, each of these letters starts with this phrase, thus says the one who this or that. Who does that sound like? What does that sound like to you? Thus says. Think about, think about the scriptures. Who's, where do you hear that phrase a lot? The prophets. Exactly. Thus says the Lord. And, and that's intentional here. The Lord's coming as a prophet. He's letting them know, I see all things. I know all things. And prophets, the, 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 the main aspect of their calling was to call the people to covenant renewal. Sometimes it means affirming covenant loyalty that's already been demonstrated. At other times, it means bringing a lawsuit saying, Israel, here's what I've done for you. And here's how you've responded. And they don't match. Your response does not match the extent and the glory of what I've done on your behalf. So I, I, in a number of respects, Deuteronomy almost is like a, a New Testament version of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was a covenant renewal document by, whereby Moses was calling the people to renewal to uh, re renewed commitment and loyalty to the covenant just as they're about to enter the promised land. So Jesus is addressing these congregations in the second person singular. He's addressing them as congregations. And that's important to bear that in mind. Although, of course, congregations are made up of individuals and families... And so most of the things he says to these congregations would have an application uh, down on the family or individual level as well. So he's the great prophet, thus says the Lord. Number two, who is, uh, um, he's the one who knows. He's the one who knows. He's the one who knows and sees and takes note of every aspect of our individual and congregational lives. He starts off nearly all seven letters, I believe, with I know these things about you. I'm watching. I'm taking note. I see your life as a congregation. I see those church board meetings. I see those. I see what's happening over in the in the in the coffee area. I see what the leaders are talking about. I see what plans are being made. I see the things that are being committed to prayer and the things that are being accomplished in the strength of man. And I see these things. And he just wants us to know. He sees and he knows. He's the Lord in authority over all creation. He says he holds the seven stars in his right hand. We learn from Revelation that the seven stars represent the seven angels. He holds all the angels in his hands and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's the eternal king and the resurrected Lord, the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. He's the one whose words cut and pierce like a sharp sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing down to the level of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And he says, I have a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. How would you like that for an opening of the letter? <laughs> and that's what his words do in these letters. They pierce. They pierce. He's the one with eyes of fire, eyes like a fiery flame, whose feet are like burnished bronze, like like metal made glowing red hot in a furnace. He's the all-consuming fire, the jealous God who has an exclusive claim on his people and who will share them with no other. His eyes are penetrating and fierce. He has no impurities. He's full of light and fire through and through at the very core of who he is. 
the one on whom the perfect spirit rests in fullness, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and revelation and the fear of the Lord and might and counsel, the Lord of the angels. He's the one who is unique, the holy one, set apart from all others. He's faithful. He's the one who opens doors and shuts doors, the reliable one, the steward over David's household. He's the one in and through whom all the promises of the covenants are yes and amen, the faithful, the amen, the true witness, the originator of God's creation. And he's the one who reproves and disciplines those whom he loves. If you find yourself in a season that you would consider discipline, count yourselves blessed, Hebrews tells us, your legitimate child. He's investing in you and preparing you for eternal glory in his coming kingdom. And so now, we're, we're standing in awe of the Lord of the lampstands. We have in our hearts and our minds the hope of the lampstands. We recognize the significance of the imagery of a lampstand. And we want to ask, what is the hope of the lampstands? What's the high calling of the lampstands? We're going to briefly summarize the hope. To those who are victorious, the one who is reliable and never lies promises. Renewed access to the tree of life and it restored Edenic glory. The victor's crown of life, mercifully spared from the second death and the lake of fire. That's really good news, trust me. I, de I definitely want to be in that category. We'll be given the hidden manna. And this is one of those things where you're tempted to start just breaking down. Well, what are the different versions of the hidden manna? But there's different, there's different possible meanings there, what that means. Uh, some, it represents uh, a pot of manna where Jeremiah uh, had hidden at the time of the exile, being brought out of hiding at the time where God establishes his glory over Jerusalem again. Others believe, other traditions, that God would actually give manna in the M Messiah's kingdom, that that would be part of our food. That would be pretty sweet. I've always, I'm like, I read about it. I'm like, man, the Israelites are like, what is this? I'm like, I, I'd like to know too. What is it? But whatever the case, we'll be granted a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who hears it. This too can mean a number of different things. It could mean a vote of, a vote of innocence or a, a, a verdict of acquittal, a vote of acquittal based on the way uh, white stones were used in certain contexts. It could also mean admission to the Messianic banquet, a new name, as we see in, for, in the examples of Abraham and Sarah and Israel, is a very significant transition point. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's the, uh, uh, according to one commentator, I'll just read it here, to change someone's name is to exercise authority over them and their destiny within biblical theology. A vassal received a new name from the suzerain when he's appointed uh, an authority over them. Uh, when, when, excuse me, when, when the suzerain is appointing a vassal over whom the suzerain is an authority, he gives them a new name, designating them as his vassal and appointing them in a place of authority and securing that bond of loyalty. A new name, a new destiny assignment for a new age and a new creation. We'll be granted authority over the nations. We'll be given the bright and morning star the morning star is using imagery. Uh, the Venus is the morning star. It's the brightest star that rises in the morning and announces the beginning of a new day. And in the New Testament era, it's a symbol of sovereignty and victory. 
And so Jesus is telling us that he's giving us a promise to share in his rule in the new day. Walk with Jesus dressed in white, names never blotted out from the book of life, but acknowledged before God and the angelic host, God the Father and the angelic host, made pillars in the temple of our God, never have to leave it. Have the name of our God, the name of the city of our God, and Jesus' new name written on us, identified as belonging to God. That's my God, that's the city of, of which I'm a part and to which I belong, the new Jerusalem, the city of righteousness in that day. Given the right to sit beside Jesus on his throne. That's amazing. Who wants that? Raise your hand. Who longs for that? Who yearns for that? This is what the tabernacle was pointing to. And the tree of life, the, the lampstands representing the tree of life, this hope lies before us as believers. I long for that day when I reach up and I grab that fruit and I eat, eat from it. And whatever the experience is, just, I just picture life going through my entire being. And love for God and love for others around me. And getting to do that forever. That's amazing. I long for that. And Jesus, Jesus says, this is the prize. This is the hope. But there's a high calling that's tied to this hope. Because we're representing the God who gives that hope. And offers it to the world. And we're going to just summarize, summarize this list. Uh, we're not going to be able to go through all these points, but these are in the notes if you ever want to check them out. I'm just going to summarize it under, under several categories. Number one, in light of all he's done for us, the Lord of the lampstands is looking for patient endurance, courage, and loyalty through persecution and suffering. It's amazing how prominent this theme is in the letters to the seven churches. And of course, this accords with Jesus' Jesus's message uh, in the Gospels, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Anybody want to be Jesus' disciple? If we're going to claim that for ourselves, this is what it means. We have to follow a crucified Messiah. And through, in, in, in doing so, we're actually putting the long-suffering and the mercy of God on display to the world on behalf of the God who suffered so, with such long suffering uh, to save us. He's looking for pa perseverance, patient endurance for Jesus' sake, patiently enduring afflictions, financial pressures, and slander, obeying his word, teaching, or command to endure patiently, courage in the face of suffering and persecution, in the face of the devil's testing. Think here of Job 1. He only worships you, God, says Satan to the Lord. He only worships you, because you bless him with good things. And the implication there is that the Lord himself is not worthy of loyalty and worship. And God says, well, all right. And the whole, the whole thing unfolds. But at the end of the day, we see, yes, no, God is worthy of our worship. And in the end, he will vindicate us after a lifetime of serving him. Faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus, even to the point of death. Loyally holding fast to Jesus' name in times of suffering and persecution. Even when our fellow believers are put to death like Antipas was. He's mentioned by name. That's hard. We see people whom we love suffer for the gospel or even die. How, what effect does that have on us? Does it spur us on to greater faithfulness by the Spirit's power? 
Or do we shrink back? Obey Jesus' teaching and remain true to his name in our weakness. So there's this whole category, perseverance and loyalty to Jesus. Love to Jesus demonstrated, not only when it's good, but when times are hard. Steadfastness, hard work, and ongoing growth, another thing Jesus is looking for in his lampstands and the people into whom he's poured his oil, the oil of his spirit. Hard work, toil in his service. We're working hard, we're sweating because the gospel needs to get out. Because we need to become increasingly conformed to his image. He's looking for a strong love and faith. Love that doesn't grow cold. I've, you've forsaken your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first is what he says to the church in Ephesus. Do the things you did at first. That first love wasn't just an abstract idea. It wasn't just emotions. It was actually concrete actions being expressed through his people. Later deeds, excelling our earlier ones. Holding fast to what we have until Jesus returns. Making sure that no one takes away our victor's crown. Continue in the things, in the, 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 things the deeds that Jesus commands until he returns. He takes his commands very seriously. These are life. Words of truth. Take active steps to strengthen the areas that are lacking them and bring unfinished deeds to completion. If we see that we're starting to get dull and sleepy or that our garments are soiled, we need to take steps to remedy it. When he talks about our our garments being soiled, he's talking about when you have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. Jesus basically looks at that and says, your, your, your garments are soiled. It's like you peed in your pants in my sight. It doesn't look nice when you come into my sanctuary in these terms. Guard against deception from within and from without. Refuse to put up with false prophets and false teachers and false apostles whose conduct and motives are evil in Jesus' sight. It's important that we test them and examine them, lest the flock be devoured by wolves. He gives some examples, and he highlights in these seven letters, he highlights specifically teachings that result in idolatry and promote immorality. And he says it very clearly in Revelation 2.6. He says, you have this in your favor, he says, to the Ephesians. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Listen, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's intense. And the reason he hates them is not just because he's randomly hating things. It's because of the effect it has on the people he died for. He says similar things to Jezebel. I've given her time to repent, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering. And I'll, strike, I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. It's intense. But remember, he's got the, the, the well-being of the congregation as a whole in mind. And fall, in this case, this particular false prophetess who's being compared to Jezebel of old in Israel who killed the Lord's prophets and led the people into the worship of Baal that the Lord is serious about dealing with these things. We need to recognize our true spiritual need, not become blind because of comfort and affluence, make sure that our reputation matches the reality. Discrepancy between name and reality, like I said earlier, it's like our garments are soiled. We need to resist lukewarmness and recognize how repulsive it is to Jesus. He says, 
to the church in Laodicea, you're basically, you're lukewarm. You say to yourself, I'm rich. I don't need a thing. But he says, actually, let me give you my assessment of you. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And he says, because of that, it's leading to this lukewarmness. You're always straddling the fence. You're never willing to commit. Or whatever the specific expression is. He says, be earnest and repent. Otherwise, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. He says, recognize who Jesus is. Respond to him when he calls. He's the one who searches minds and hearts. His rebuke and his discipline stems from his love and his loyalty. We need to take his warning seriously and repent when he brings discipline and correction. This is a prominent theme. He's very clear. This is what I'm looking for. If you find yourself in one of these situations, I'm looking for repentance. I'm looking for an acknowledgement, and I'm looking for a cry to me. His warning to the church in Ephesus, repent or I'll come and remove your lampstand. Apparently, Jesus is not only in the business of starting churches, but also shutting them down if they're not shining his light. Warning to the church in Pergamum, repent or I'll come and engage them, meaning those who hold to the teaching of Balaam and and the Nicolaitans, leading people to idolatry and immorality is what that means in that context. I'll come and fight them in battle with the sword of my mouth. If you want an example of what that looks like, read Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Warning to the church in Thyatira, repent or I'll afflict Jezebel followers with the pla- Jezebel's followers with the plague. You want an example of that? 1 Corinthians 11, where he says to them, because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some of you are sick and have even died. I didn't write this stuff, people. I'm just letting you know, this is the Lord of the lampstands. I'm a little dinky guy. But I want my light to shine when I read these statements. Warning to the church in Sardis, repent and wake up or you'll be caught off guard when I visit you. Implying that's not a good thing. Warning to the church in Laodicea, repent and I'll come in and eat with you. Implying if you don't repent, we're not eating together. Jesus is concerned about truth, loyalty, faithfulness, and obedience. A hallowing, a love for his gospel. Not whether we feel comfortable or not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet we have great reason for confidence and assurance as well. He not only corrects, but he affirms. And along with heeding his warnings, we also need to take his promises and assurances seriously. By the Spirit of the Lord of the Lamb stands burning within us. Press on toward the goal to win the prize. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to wrap this up. And of course, the question that I'm sure all of you are waiting for. What about this congregation? Bethany Church. What would the Lord of the Lampstand say to us? I don't know. Maybe we should ask him. And when he gives the answer, how will we respond? What will we do? Will we theologize it away? I, I, I I can give you lots of different ways. I mean, all the different ways that theologians and churches over the centuries have theologize these kinds of statements away. Don't want to do that. What, what would he say? Would he say something similar to what he said to the church in Ephesus? Bethany, I saw you in, those, in the 1940s when these five families gave up everything for the sake of the gospel. I heard that cry to send out a hundred missionaries by, you know, with the gospel. And I saw when you celebrated in 1974 when that happened. I saw when you were making RVs and campers because your love burned bright. 
But Bethany, what's happened? I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not saying this is what he would say. But I'm saying, what if? What would he say? Or would he say, Tim, do you have a reputation for being alive? You've got a lot of teachings on this website that you've put together called Daniel Training Network. People watch it. But what's happening on the inside, son? And the same, of course, true, Bethany Church. We're living in a, we're living in a time where all of us get a reputation. Everybody has access to every, everything with information, right? But do we have a reality on the inside that the Lord sees? No, they're alive. They are alive. And they are a burning and a shining lampstand. The Lord, or is he going to say something like he says to the church in, in Smyrna or Philadelphia? I see your weakness. I see your struggle. I see that people are slandering you. But you've been faithful to me and you've loved my teaching and you've stayed steady. Oh, how I long to hear him say that. And I believe that's the potential for every church in the body of Christ, including this one. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would burn bright in us, oh God. That you would fill us. And that you would renew us. That we would truly shine with the light of your glory in this day. In this time where we desperately need, desperately need your light to shine to the nations of the earth. Oh God, I pray in the name of Jesus for help, for oil, God, oil to fill us, oh God. A bruised reed you will not break and a smoldering wick, Lord, you will not snuff out. So come and light us up again as a church family and light up your body in this hour that we would truly be shining lampstands full of your fire you look upon us and you say yes my life is at work in them yes my life and my power are accomplishing and having that's its intended effect in this people god accomplish this we pray in this place in jesus name feel free to come for prayer leaders let's just have you guys come out to the and prayer team let's go to the sides and just be ready to pray for people if any of you want prayer just take some time i want to encourage everybody to take some time now to respond to the lord and ask him to show you lord is there any area that i need your oil specifically let's stand together